So today we are continuing our series called With, uh, talking about how we view our relationship with God. Uh, And for the last four weeks, we've been talking about the four default postures, because the way that we view, uh, view God has a profound impact on how we live out our faith and how we interact with each other. Now, this message series is based on a book that was written by a pastor and author named Sky Jatani called With, Reimagining the Way You Relate to God. Uh, This was a book that I read for the first time uh, almost 10 years ago now, and it was something that really profoundly impacted me. And so uh, about six years ago, we did this message series as a church, and so we decided to bring it back for this time period because it's something that helps us orientate ourselves towards God in such a deep and profound way. And so to recap the last uh, four weeks, if you're joining us new today, um, we've been talking about the four default postures. And the four default postures can be explained this way, that there is life over God, life under God, life from God. And last week, Vicky talked about life for God. Now, life over God is the posture where we think we can reduce God and scripture into a list of best principles and practices. And if we live out those best principles and practices, we'll be guaranteed success and security that we want. The life under God posture is a posture that is not unlike superstition. It's a posture that believes if we just worship God the right way, if we view, if we treat him the right way, then God will bless us and protect us and give us what we need to feel safe and secure. The life from God posture is a posture that says God exists to give us good things and everything that we need in life, we can just get that from God. And so our relationship with God is about getting the gifts from God more than God himself. And then last week, Vicki talked about life for God. And this is the posture where we start to think that our value is often found in what we do for God, in how we serve, in, in what we give, in what we do. And for me, when I first read this book almost 10 years ago, I realized that the life for God posture was the posture that had underlined most of my life and most of my relationship with God up until that point in time. In fact, when I read that chapter, I had to stop reading the book for a little while and just internally deal with what does it mean that I was so wrapped in that posture? And it left me with this burning question. How do I move toward life with God? Because when we discover that default posture, we're often left with this question, well, what do we do next? And if it's not a giveaway by the title of the book, the whole purpose is to move from these four postures into a life with God. And the word with is a relational word. It talks about having a relationship with God. We're no longer using God for something. We're no longer using God to get something or to control God. It's about being in a relationship with God. And Sky writes it this way in the book. He says, the life, but the life with God is different because its goal is not to use God. Its goal is God. He ceases to be a device we employ or a commodity we consume. Instead, God himself becomes the focus of our desire. And so seeing God clearly in this way is a critical step because we move our focus from the things of God into God himself. And so how do we really do that? Because how do we dive into that? And that's what we're going to explore through our message today. And one of the ways that can help us understand this is that the life with God posture 
happens when we see who God truly is and we begin to treasure God instead of using God as a method to get what we want in life. And Sky uses this word treasure, um, that when we treasure God above the things of God, that's when we start moving into this life with God. So how do we treasure God? How do we get this movement towards seeing God clearly? And again, I want to go to Sky's words in the book where he says, those with an incomplete or tainted vision of God either want to use him or dismiss him. That's the first four postures. But when a full, clear, and rapturous vision of God is presented, we will not settle for anything less than being with him. And I like the way he puts that, a full, clear, and rapturous vision of God. That means that it holds our attention. It holds our focus on God himself. Then we don't want to settle for anything less. We don't want to settle for one of the four postures when we've gotten a taste of the relationship with God. And so how do we get to that fuller vision of God? How do we get to recognize that, to to that full, clear, and rapturous vision? And for that, I want to start our message today by going to one of Paul's letters. And so Paul was an apostle in the church. He wrote uh, most of the New Testament letters. And he wrote these letters sometimes to churches, sometimes to individuals. But he was always writing his letters with this tone of encouragement. He wanted to encourage churches and encourage individuals to seek God. And in his letter to the Colossian church, After the customary introductions at the beginning, he starts with this poem where he is describing who Christ is, and he begins it with this line. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. We can't see God directly, but through Jesus Christ, we see the visible image of the invisible God. And he goes on to describe what that means, that when we are seeking Jesus, when we are focusing on who Jesus is, we start to see the invisible God. We start to see God through Jesus. And then he ends this poem that he begins Colossians with, and I'd encourage you to read the whole Colossians 1, 15 to 20 at some point. But I'm going to jump to verse 19. It says, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And so what Paul is saying is that Christ's death on the cross, his execution at the hands of the religious rulers of the day was a means for God to make peace with everything and reconcile everything to himself. And it was the fullness of God living in Christ that gave himself as a sacrifice so that we could have that relationship with God. The whole purpose and the whole point of what Jesus did was to draw us into this relationship. And so when we get this fuller vision, this this is this fuller vision that Paul is calling the church to. Because whenever Paul was encouraging the churches, he called them to focus on Jesus. And at the time that Paul is writing this, there are still people in the church who were eyewitnesses, who could have been there and seen Jesus firsthand with their own eyes. And some of the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark may have been written at this point and started circulation. We don't know for sure if the Colossian church had a Gospel of Mark yet. It was the, Mark was the first of the four to be written. But Paul always calls them back to looking to Jesus as this example. And then as they look to Jesus to see the reconciliation that Jesus created between God and humanity. And then 
as we see that reconciliation, we can't help but see God's deep love for us because why would God reconcile us to him if he didn't have this deep, nurturing love and desire to be in a relationship with us? And so this is kind of the pattern that Paul used to encourage churches. He pointed them to Jesus. He pointed them to reconciliation. He pointed them to recognize God's love for them and then said, now seek God with all that you are. See, when we get a fuller vision of who God is and his desire to reconcile us back to himself, we start to treasure God in a new and profound way. When this viewpoint of reconciliation between God and humanity becomes the focus of our faith, it becomes this path that leads us deeper into a relationship with God. And that's this whole big point of this series is to draw us into seeing that relationship that God desires with us so that we start to desire that relationship with God as well. And so when Jesus was on the earth, when he taught and when he spoke, he was speaking about things that were difficult to understand even to a first century Jewish person. Even though it's, Jesus was entrenched in that context and that society, Jesus himself was Jewish, as he's speaking, he's talking about things that people struggled to understand. And so Jesus used uh, a teaching method known as parables. He often told short stories that would explain something about who God is and, and what the kingdom of heaven is like. And most of these parables often started with him saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of God is like. And he was trying to get people to understand this new vision and this new nature of what is this kingdom of heaven that God is building. And one of these times when Jesus is teaching his disciples, he tells them these two short little parables back to back that he wants them to unpack and wrestle with and discuss. And Jesus tells this, and, and so Matthew writes it down in his gospel this way. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. And so this, this man is, you know, discovers this hidden treasure, this whatever this treasure is, something of great value to him. And so he puts it back in the property. He doesn't steal it. He doesn't run away with it. He puts it back where he found it. Then he sells everything he has and he buys the field that contains this treasure so that he can have this treasure. And so remember, Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like He's saying the kingdom of heaven is something that is a treasure worth more than we can imagine. And that it will mean that when we get this picture of it, we may look at our lives and say, look at the things we don't need because we are pursuing this treasure of the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus goes on, he says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. Now, what's different in this one, as opposed to the man who finds the treasure, the, the, the Greek kind of assumes that the man stumbled upon the treasure in the field. He wasn't looking for a treasure, he just happened upon it. And in this one, it says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who is on the lookout. He is looking for that which has value that he can possess. Now, parables always break down a little bit. Because the point of this parable is not that we can possess the kingdom of God or possess the kingdom of heaven. The point of the parable is that the kingdom of heaven is of great value and is something that we ought to treasure. 
And so Sky reminds us of this. He says, the Bible doesn't speak of possessing God the way one possesses or acquires a piece of property. He is not a passive object like a vintage Mustang to be purchased and put on display. Instead, the writers of the New Testament talked about being united with or reconciled to God. They used relational language to emphasize the interpersonal nature of the human divine connection. And this is what sets Christianity, and this is what sets following God separate from any other religion of the first century and any other um, viewpoint on God that was present in Jesus' day is that the writers of the New Testament are talking about this being united with and reconciled to. This is relational language. And outside of Judaism and outside of this early movement of Jesus followers that was called the way and then later on got the name Christian, we don't see this relational language between human and the divine outside of here. And so when Jesus is talking about this being reconciled being united as he tells these parables. All of these are about us recognizing that our, our viewpoint of God needs to start from a relational point of view. God is not a far-off distant deity that we worship like an idol. God desires a relationship of connection with us. And that's what separates the life with God out from the other four postures. Again, it's coming back to this treasuring God of of capturing a fuller vision of who God is. And so, um, before this message series, before we we dived into this book called With, we did a, a, a message series called Church Beyond These Walls. And in that message series, we talked about how the church is not a building or an event. Rather, the church is a community of faith gathered for a common purpose. The the Greek word was ekklesia, means an assembly of people with a common purpose. And so we spent some time discussing as a church together, what does it mean to be an assembly of people with a common purpose? Now, that's not to discount that the event, that when we gather as a community of faith, and right now, gathering looks like online in this format, But as we gather in this format or when we connect with one another, when we, you know, you know, now we're, we're able to do backyard visits with people. That's something that's kind of exciting that we can step back into. But whenever we connect with one another, we are connecting in a relational way. And the church has this purpose, this common purpose is to call people into this relational connection between God and humanity. That's why that's part of our mission as a church to, we talk about this here at Grand Valley, to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. Because God is not just something that we worship as an idol or something that we can possess and hold. God desires a relationship with us. And so how do we live in that relationship? Now the gospels, the four accounts of Jesus' life all highlight that Jesus in his ministry took time away from the crowds and away from the people to pray and connect with God. And it's kind of interesting. We think, well, Jesus is God himself put on flesh, the incarnation stepping into humanity, but he still took time away to rest and connect with the Father. And after one of these times, one of the disciples goes and asks Jesus a question, and we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke for this. It says, once Jesus was in a certain place praying, as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, 
teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Now, John here is not John the disciple and later apostle. This is John the Baptist. And so Jesus' disciple, we don't know which one of his disciples asked this question, but Jesus' disciple recognizes that John the Baptist had taught his disciples to pray in a way that was different and unlike what they were used to. And so he goes to Jesus and says, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, all the disciples would have known how to pray. They grew up attending synagogue. They grew up with the Psalms, the songbook, and the prayer book of their people. But they recognize something in how Jesus prays is different. So he says, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus responds this way. He says, this is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Now, this first statement is a statement of worth. This is a statement describing that Father, our Father God, God is someone to be treasured. May your name be kept holy is an act of worship. That says, may your kingdom come soon. May the way that you want this world to be, where the world is reconciled back into a relationship with you. And Luke constantly talks about the kingdom being something that is already and not yet, meaning the kingdom has begun, but it is not yet complete. And so this prayer begins with recognizing the treasure that God is, and then recognizing God's desire to be reconciled into a relationship with everyone. And then Jesus continues, he says, give us each day the food we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and don't let us yield to temptation. Now, yes, the prayer asks God, give us what we need each day. Now that comes out of recognizing who God is, recognizing he is to be treasured. It's not starting with needing something from God, but recognizing that the gifts from God flow out of that relational connection of the first two lines. And then this next pair, this forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, demonstrates that as followers of Jesus, we need to be part of a community that is marked with love and grace to one another. That as we make mistakes, as we screw up, as we bear one another's burdens, as it's described later in scripture, that we forgive others as we are forgiven. To be a community of radical forgiveness is something that was that is unheard of, something that is difficult to do but is worthwhile to do because it flows out of that desire. God wants everything reconciled back to him, so that means forgiveness. And this last line, don't let us yield to temptation, is saying, hold us close to you. Don't let us slip away. Don't let us lose sight of the treasure and the vision of who you are. Now, this passage here in Luke And the parallel passage from Matthew 6, when Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, together are known as the Lord's Prayer. And there's nothing wrong with repeating this prayer exactly as it's written. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we look at this prayer, as we look at the Lord's Prayer, we start to see each of these lines is a movement. Each of these lines describes part of a way of life. It is something that we live out. We live out declaring God holy. We live out seeking the kingdom. We live out relying on God for what we need. We live out forgiveness for one another. We live out this security that we find in God that holds us fast from temptation. See, if we live the movements of the Lord's prayer, it becomes more than communication. This way of life leads to a continual connection with God. 
Not just the quiet times, not just the solitude time, not just the time when you open your Bible and read, or not a time when you, you know, take time to pray, but as we live out these practices as described in the Lord's Prayer, we come into this continual connection with God. And if we fast forward to near the end of the Gospels and we jump to the Gospel of John for this one, John spends this time describing the last evening that Jesus has with his disciples before he's going to be arrested. And in the middle of that, Jesus promises to them that he is sending the Holy Spirit who is with them now and later will be within them. Again, a relational connection. And in the middle of that, John 15, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. Remain in me and I will remain in you for a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Jesus is saturating this metaphor of a gardener and the vine and the branches connected to the vine as this picture of connectedness, this picture of being reconciled together into a relationship so that we can bear fruit. We can be agents of God's reconciliation wherever we go. See, this life with God posture, it happens when we be happens when we see who God truly is and we begin to treasure God and our relationship with him above the things of God that we talked about in the first four postures. The life with God posture starts with we have to treasure and see who God is. And I want to wrap up by returning to a parable that we've looked at the last two weeks. We've looked at different portions of the parable and this parable is called the parable of the prodigal son uh, found in Luke 15. And I want to do something today with this parable that might be a little different. I want to retell the first portion of the parable, and then I'm going to change the parable. Jesus, he told each of the parables he told, we know that he told them to his disciples and to different crowds multiple times. Uh, He likely never only said a parable once. And so each time he told parables, there would have been variation in them. And so if you'll allow me to, I want to make a variation of the parable of the prodigal son, and you'll see where I diverge from where it normally goes. So the parable of the prodigal son starts this way. A man has two sons and his younger son goes to his father and says to him, I want my inheritance now. Give me your inheritance now before you die. And the father, even though he shouldn't, he chooses to give his, he liquidates part of his assets and gives his younger son his inheritance. And the younger son leaves, goes to a distant land and he wastes away the money. And at this point where he runs out of money, a famine hits the land and there's no work to be had. And he finally finds a job feeding pigs. And he realizes the food that he's feeding to these pigs is better than the food he's eating. And so he comes up with his plan. He says, I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say to him, I'm not worthy to be your son, but would you take me on as a hired servant? And so he leaves this foreign land and he heads back. And as he approaches his father's hometown, his father's farm, the father is looking for him. And the father sees him from a long ways off and runs to the younger son. And the younger son starts this apology that he's been rehearsing in his head over and over as he comes. He says, I'm sorry, I have sinned against you. And the father cuts him off and doesn't even let him make his request to be a servant. And the father right away says, no, no, you are welcome back. Now, in the parable, as Jesus told it in Luke 15, the older son is upset. 
The father calls for a celebration. He says, call for a robe, a ring, and a sandal. Let's kill the fattened calf. Let's have a celebration for my son has returned. But what if, what if instead of exemplifying the life for God posture, what if the older brother exemplified the life with God posture? See, then when the father recognizes his younger son approaches, he starts running to him, the older son would see his brother returning and runs with him. And when the father calls for a robe, a ring, and a sandal and called for the fattened calf, the older son nods his head and he heads back to the homestead to prepare the celebration and prepare the party. And maybe later that night, as the father and the older son are sitting around a fire, as the celebration has wound down and people have returned to their homes, maybe the father looks to the older son and says, hey, do you understand why I did that? Do you understand why I welcomed your younger son back? See, if the older son had lived his life with the father, he would recognize that since the day his brother left, that it pained the father, that the father was yearning to see his son back, to express his love and compassion to his son. And so the older son maybe would respond to him something along the lines of saying, yes, I have seen your hurt. I have seen your pain over your son who rejected you. And I have been with you in that pain. And so when we saw my brother returning, I knew we had to celebrate. See, this is the outpouring of the life with God posture. When we live in that relationship with God, where we treasure him, where we have a clear and full vision of who God is, when we embrace that, we begin to see how we get to be part of God's presence with humanity here and now. We start to get in tune with God's heart for the world. We start to see injustice in a different light. We start to see pain and suffering in different light. We start to see the way that God is desiring to reconcile the world back to himself. And as people living with God, we start to look for our place and our presence in that reconciliation. That's what the life with God leads to. Now, for the next two weeks, we're going to continue exploring this life with God posture. We're going to talk about what it means to live life with faith and life with hope. Um, And that's going to bring this series to a close. So I want to thank you for being here and joining us today. I want to thank you for exploring this topic. And I, my hope and my prayer for all of us is that this week, as we go about our lives, as we look at what's happening in the world around us, as we interact with, with people, would we look for those opportunities to see God's heartbeat and to see God's desire to be both with us and with all of those around us. So thanks for being here. I hope you have a great Sunday and we'll see you online next week.